Well, is the gospel, the good news that we've been already thinking about uh, during this service, is it too good to be true? I think that's the question that Paul wants us to think about as we get uh, to Romans chapter 5, after the awesome news of chapters uh, 3 and 4. Paul knows that his readers might be thinking, is this too good to be true? Uh, Often the advice on how to avoid a scam is to ask yourself, is this too good to be true? If it is, then it is probably not true. There must be a catch or a downside somewhere. Well, is the wonder of free justification, peace with God, access to his presence, is that actually just too good to be true? Surely these benefits that uh, we saw last week, we're going to think about tonight, surely there must be a cost later for getting all those benefits now. Isn't there some sort of catch? Or will we really get to live with God forever in his glory? Well, welcome back to uh, Romans 5. We're here for four Sunday evenings in September. And last week, we thought about the hope of the glory of God. Uh, We saw these two definitions. We saw that hope is the certain expectation of future glory. And the the glory of God in this context is God-likeness, sharing God's greatness in the new creation. It is the fruit of being declared right with God, the creator, It's the deep and perfect peace that verses 1 and 2 tell us can be ours in Jesus. We have the privilege of access to the holy God, something that no human being should ever take for granted. Last week, the potential catch that Paul was uh, wanted to kind of explode was suffering. Does suffering now mean that we can't enjoy God's glory later in the future? And the emphatic answer, if you were here last week from verses 3 to 5, was no. Suffering now actually strengthens our hope, our certain expectation for future glory. God loves us, verse 5, if you look down at that. We didn't read it, but it was the end of our passage last week. God loves us. He is not out to scam us. He is out to bless us. And he does that by giving his spirit poured out into our hearts. But what if it's not suffering that you're worried about, but sin? If you were one of the original hearers of this letter uh, to some Roman Christians, you might be worried at this point. As your guest, Phoebe, perhaps uh, reads out the first part of the letter... Uh, the first chapters, to an audience maybe assembled in a courtyard, maybe it was this warm, in Rome in the 50s AD, maybe you're a man called Philologus, or a woman called Julia, the master and the mistress of this house. And you remember the days not so long ago when you gave in to shameful lusts. Or maybe you're actually a slave of a man called Aristobulus. 
you might be thinking, wow, that description in chapter one of someone full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, oh, that is me. Or maybe you're Herodian, a Jew who's recently returned uh, to Rome after the edict of Claudius had uh, been rescinded, and you are full of judgment, scorn at how this little house church that you left has been going since you left. And now, because of what Paul has said so far, you are burning with shame at that judgmental attitude, your superiority because of your ethnic privilege. Each in your heart is wondering, okay, Paul, the slate has been wiped clean. I know I am justified. I know I have peace with God now. But is this nest of sin that is my heart, is that really not going to stop me from coming to your glory? Surely, God, you do not love me that much. Isn't my sin too big a problem for you? Won't God's wrath, his right anger against that sin, fall upon me in the end? And as we wonder, as we imagine what the first readers may have been thinking, perhaps you're thinking along the same lines. Summer can be a funny time uh, for our Christian lives, can't it? Our regular life groups uh, take a break, uh, and for many, uh, trips away mean that we're not at church as often as we would normally be. There are distractions and temptations all around us. Our regular routines are thrown off, and we can easily be thrown into persistent sin. Or at the very least, we might feel that we're going backwards, that our Christian growth has stalled, our godliness has taken sort of a back seat during those months. Maybe you thought over the summer, okay, in September, I'm going to give church one more try, but then that's it, I'm out. And suddenly we are in September and things sort of go back to normal apart from the heat. And you're here and you see your Christian friends and they ask you, how was uh, your summer? And we talk about our holidays, but we don't talk about our hearts. We don't think, oh, we think, if only you knew what had happened. And we feel a burning sense of shame. Perhaps we ask ourselves, Can I keep going as a Christian? Is it worth living for Jesus in September and October if I didn't want to live for him in July and August? If sort of at my most relaxed state in the sunshine, I was selfish, what am I going to be like in the deadlines and the darkness of November? Isn't my sin just too big? A problem. Well, this evening we're going to see that Paul is as emphatic at saying no to sin being a barrier to God's love as he was to suffering last week. Have a look at verse 10 again with me. It's on page 1132 if you've closed it. Verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? 
In these verses, Paul says God's love is proved in Jesus' death on the cross for sinners and that that guarantees our final salvation, that we will enter his glory. He wants us to be certain that God's wrath is is satisfied, it's fully used up when Jesus died on the cross for us. And so we can rejoice, we can boast in God's love. I love that picture that uh, Carfoon shared of us, of uh, Rico's nephew, if you were here um, earlier in the service, of going, yes, that is the idea of boasting that we want to keep in mind. We're going to see two truths about Jesus' death that hopefully will get us uh, to that point. Here's the first one uh, from verses six to eight. Christ's death proves God's love for sinners. Christ's death proves God's love for sinners. Have a look down at verses six to eight again. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul has just told us that Christ's love is proved. uh, uh, God's love for us is proved by his giving us his spirit in verse 5. Now, there's, there's no way that Paul doesn't think that the spirit is real. But I think he does know that we can't actually see him. Um, directly. And so Paul turns to another proof of God's love, one that is maybe a bit easier to verify and to understand. The cross, a historical fact that we can point to. When Paul was writing this letter, there were still eyewitnesses alive, maybe some even in Rome. We have some of their accounts in the Gospels. Paul says, You want proof that God really loves you. You want proof that your sin won't stop you getting to glory. Well, look no further than the cross. Christ's death on the cross proved God's love for sinners. Now, here's how it works. Paul sets up a hypothetical situation in verse 7, if you look at that. He says, think of someone that you have no great affection uh, for but that you recognise that they are not sort of actively a bad person. Would you die for them? No. Well, suppose it's actually a good person. They're friendly and they're kind. Perhaps they're even a a good friend uh, of yours. Would you die for them? Well, it's a bit more likely, isn't it? But it's only an outside possibility. Where does Paul go next? Well, the logic would uh, suggest that the conclusion is, if no one will die for sort of a morally good person, or uh, and very few will die for a good person, no one is going to die for what we were, verse 6, powerless and godly. That's the logic. Here's the surprise. Read verse 8 again with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for sinners 
like us. Christ died not for the good, for those trying to do their best or on the cusp of sort of moral reformation. We don't have to shine our lives up to uh, merit God's love. We were enemies, as verse 10 has it. Here's the picture. It's a Jewish woman dying for a violent, occupying Roman soldier. It's a Yoruba farmer dying for a European slave trader. It's a German dying for a British soldier in World War I or II. Sadly, I could go on and on, couldn't I? I could pick something from any age of history. I could pick something from anywhere around the world, and we would get it. It is someone actively seeking your harm. It's an enemy. In this case, we're thinking about all the ways that we have rebelled against God, as outlined in chapters 1 to 3. People don't die for their enemies. But God the Father deliberately sent his son, who willingly came, to die for his enemies. Enemies like you and me. Enemies like Tobias Brown. I really urge you to come to that Pillar and Step event to hear an amazing story of God's love for someone that you and I would not die for. Christ's death proves his love for sinners. If today you don't believe that God loves you, look back to that day about 2,000 years ago and see Jesus dying on the cross for you. Take the 10 minutes that it would take this week to read one of the gospel accounts of uh, the cross. Or better still, maybe, read one each day from the four uh, Gospels, from Monday to Thursday. And then on Friday, read this passage again. Marvel at this outpouring of God's love. Now, if you don't know how to read a Gospel, then do join us at Christianity Explored in October. We'd really love uh, to help you to do that. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are not empty words or shallow gestures like you might see in the throes of a relationship, which is failing. God is not a parent who tells us that he loves us, but is actually really quite grumpy with us most of the time. He doesn't tell us that we should know that he loves us by how hard he works to give us all the privileges that we have. He's not a God, a parent, who never shows how much he loves us. God demonstrates he shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. This is the greatest expression of love that the world has or ever will know. Christ's death proves God's love for sinners. There is no way that such love could fail to get us to his glory, to be with him forever. But in case any doubt remains, Paul has one more ace up his sleeve uh, for us. Here's our second point. Christ's death and resurrection prove our final salvation. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. Have a look at those again. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, at first reading, maybe these verses uh, appear a little complicated. I think Paul has three time zones uh, in mind here. And once we get them straight, I hope that his point is clear. Now, we've seen them uh, before. The first is the past time zone. We were God's enemies. That time zone comes to an end with the cross. That's the reference in uh, verse 9 to Jesus' blood and verse 10 to his death. And that event justified us and it reconciled us to God, verses 9 and 10. Now, the language of reconciliation is new in this uh, passage, but the idea is not. It's uh, basically the same as peace with God that we thought about in verse 2 last week. It's a restored relationship, an end of a conflict. Then the next time zone is the present. We are now in a state of being justified and reconciled. We're at peace with God. We have access to him in grace. And that time zone comes to an end with the outpouring of God's wrath when Jesus comes again. Paul would have called it uh, the day of the Lord uh, with its rich Old Testament background. And he's referred to it already in the letter. In 2 verse 5, he says this, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. After that is time zone three, the future. And for Christians, that means glory. Now, we said this already, but it is worth saying it again. The outpouring of God's wrath is an event that we need saving from, as both verse 9 and verse 10 tell us. And Paul says, we will be saved. For him, it is obvious. That's why we have these two how much more statements in verses 9 and 10, if you look at them. They work by saying that something amazing and difficult has happened in the past, it's been achieved. Well, isn't it obvious that something sort of relatively easier will happen. John Stock calls it irresistible logic in verses 9 and 10, and I love that phrase. Verse 9, look at it again. Since Jesus shed his own blood for us, he's saying, on the cross, to make us right with God, isn't it obvious that we will be safe on the day that he comes to judge the world? Or verse 10, since Jesus died, well, we were actually still his enemies. Isn't it obvious that we will be safe. Did you notice the extra bit that Paul added in in verse 10? It is through Jesus' life, the very last words of verse 10. It's through his indestructible resurrection life that we're saved. Now, this isn't Paul sort of changing his mind from verse 9 to 10. He's saying, of course, the cross saves us. The proof is that Jesus was raised from the dead, and we have life with him. It's a theme that Paul comes back to 
in chapter 8 again. Think of it uh, like this. Uh, Some children ask uh, their dad for a new uh, go-kart, and the dad thinks, well, yeah, that would be uh, quite fun. And so each evening, while they're asleep, he goes off uh, to the garage, and uh, he sets to work. He does some research, he comes up with plans, he buys the material, he does some nailing and banging, and I have never built a go-kart, but you can imagine what he does. And he tests it out uh, on his workbench, and then he paints it a lovely racing green. And one weekend, he says to his children, I've got a, I've got a surprise for you. Your go-kart is ready. And they go into the, uh, the garage, and one of his uh, children says, does it really work? And the other says, can we really take it out? We're not actually sure that we believe you, because you haven't opened the garage door yet. What does the dad say to his children? Of course it really works. Of course you can really take it out. I've spent months building this. The hard work is done. The garage door is not going to stop us taking it out. It's not going to stop it. Stop me giving it to you. The easy part is the garage door. The hard part is done. And then he would strive over and fling open the door and out would go the go-kart. Brothers and sisters, the hard part of our salvation is done. God is not going to fall at the last hurdle. All that is needed for us to share in his glory has been done already. Christ's death and resurrection prove our final salvation. Now, if you've been a Christian uh, for a long time and you feel a sort of increasing sense of sinfulness as the Spirit sort of puts his finger on more and more areas of your life where your flesh is trying to carry on that war against God, well, take heart, brothers and sisters. It is unlikely that you are actually going backwards. If time zones one and two have happened, the past and the present, if they are true for you, then time zone three, the future glory, will also be true for you too. It is guaranteed. And so verse 11 has Paul's reaction to this good news that he's just proclaimed. Have a look at that once more. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul boasts. He rejoices, just as he did back in verses 2 and 3, at the thought of the hope of glory and because of his sufferings. If we are trusting in Jesus, my hope and prayer is that you too can boast, you can rejoice at this great news. Maybe you did recognise yourself as someone who had a bad summer. Well, rejoice that God in Christ has reconciled himself to you. You are still at peace with God. Nothing will disqualify you from the hope of the glory of God. Not even your sin. God loves you this much to have given his own son for you. You can boast in that. We can all boast in that if we are trusting in him. Not in a sort of well done me way, pat on the back way, 
but in a sort of, I actually believe this is true way. It's that kind of confidence. People should know that this is what we think. Not so that they feel looked down on, but so they can say, wow, I too could have that kind of confidence for the future. I could be that sure that God loves me. I want to end by addressing uh, the person who came here tonight thinking, I'm going to give church one more go this September. If that is you, please don't walk away from the God who loves you this much. You will not find such love anywhere else. I can guarantee that. Please do stick around. Please join a life group. As uh, Catherine said, Roots would be uh, the perfect fit for you as we spend the whole year delving deeper into this letter of Romans. I'm really excited uh, to be thinking about God's love in that way. God's love is proved in Jesus's death for sinners like you and me to move us from being enemies of God to those who can confidently say, I know that God loves me. I know that I can hope for glory to come. Please don't give up on that. Don't miss out on it. We're going to pray in a minute. I'm going to invite the band back up. And once they're here, I will lead us in a prayer.